Top of the hour is being brought to you by DuckDuckGo, Privacy Simplified. And this hour is being brought to you by Menards. Save big money at Menards. Ray, Steve Stone's here. Let's go. Lawrence Holmes, noon to two on Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. Color analyst for the White Sox, Steve Stone, joins Lawrence Holmes. Try it with your bare hand. It's a lot easier that way. Steve Stone is a Cy Young Award winner. He is a fantastic color analyst for your Chicago White Sox, and he is a score baseball expert. As Steve was saying, try it with your bare hand. It's a lot easier that way. Steve actually poked his bare hand in the booth and has cut himself open. Steve Stone talks with Lawrence Holmes. I'm about to pass out. Yeah. <laughs> Lost of blood. Social media got Steve Stone and Lawrence Holmes right now on The Score. Stoney joins me on the Circuit Resort and Casino Hotline. Circuit Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. The White Sox and the Guardians were snowed out yesterday, but they're hoping to get the game in tonight. It'll be a 5-10 first pitch, and you will be able to see our guest on NBC Sports Chicago making a call of the game in his beloved Cleveland. Hello, Stoney. Hello, Lawrence. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm, I'm hoping to get some White Sox baseball in tonight, and hopefully the, the weather stays nice enough that we can see that be the case. Well, understand that the weather is not nice. It's not nice by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, as I was driving to see my uh, my family uh, the last couple of days, uh, starting uh, obviously with a lot of snow yesterday, and today I was driving up there. It was 34 degrees, so this is... Uh, This is unique. Even as bad as the weather is in Cleveland, this is kind of unique even for Cleveland. So uh, I understand that somewhere maybe at the end of this weekend here, it's going to be 75 or 80 degrees. But right now, nobody's able to feel their hands. This is true. Same thing here in Chicago where where I looked at the 10-day forecast. I was like, this is the most Chicago 10-day forecast I've ever seen. There's <laughs> snow, there's sun, there's rain, there's wind, and then at the end of it, it's going to be 75 degrees. So, yeah, it, 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 you know, I would say we, we want to get there sooner rather than later. No doubt about it. There, there was something uh, in general that I wanted to ask you about that you said during the game on Sunday that I was fascinated by. You were talking about not pitching to the corners early in account with Velasquez, you brought it up. I was hoping that you could spend, you could expound a little bit on that, where you're, you you don't want to necessarily challenge with the corners when you're early in the count because then you turn it into a hitter's count. Can you can you give me a little bit more on that? Well, there's there's an adage in baseball: you can't strike out anybody on strike one. So for me to show you my best curveball, my best slider, or a fastball painted on the black low and away, my odds of actually hitting that for a strike are not near as great as when I use the outer third of the plate. So you've got 17 inches of plate. Uh, you can use, you know, the the outer third, let's say, call it, uh, call it uh, uh, five inches on either side, in or out, which gives you seven inches in the middle, which you're not going to deal with at all because you want to keep it out of the middle of the plate. But I think guys get carried away with trying to make the perfect pitch on strike one. You don't really have to do that because if it is the perfect pitch, more times than not, certainly if it's a breaking ball, but more times than not even with a fastball, uh, a guy is not, um, not going to swing all that often on a pitcher's pitch. Now, there are notorious 
first of all, fastball hitters, where if it stays in the ballpark, they're going to be swinging. But uh, most guys are not like that. Most guys would like to get you in a situation where you have to come to them with more of the plate because you're afraid of the walk. So that's all I was saying. I think Aaron Bummer has suffered from that earlier uh, earlier this year than, than he probably would have wanted to do that because he's he's throwing a lot to the corners and missing. Consequently, he's been he's been falling behind uh, on just about everything, and uh, that's that's led to some pretty tough innings for him. After the the first inning, which was was filled with mistakes and getting hit and all of that stuff, I felt like Velasquez calmed down. What what do you take away from that? portion of his start well first of all he brought a lot of it on himself because it should have been a one-run inning anytime you get a one hopper right back to you with the bases loaded it's a very easy one two three double play because uh you know if it has anything on that one hop you're going to get it you're going to throw to the plate and the catcher is actually going to have some time to get a pretty good angle before he returns the throw to third base to first base to complete that double play so um if he makes that relatively easy play, he's going to get out of the inning. And it's going to be one run, and the Sox maybe, just maybe, come away with a win because then you use a completely different order out of your bullpen than Tony was using when he was behind in that game. You know, there's there's uh, the saying in, in this day and age is the high-leverage pitcher. You're, you're going to get the guys that you use in high-leverage situations as opposed to the other pitchers you use in low leverage situations i mean unless tony is forced to because he's thrown uh he's thrown his left handers a lot you're not going to see severino in there in a high leverage situation he's too young major league wise to be thrown into those situations but he was out there and, and the game got away when he was in there so it's a whole different story when you're ahead than when you're behind you use a different set of relievers and maybe the game takes on a much different texture uh, if, in fact, he turns that double play. I'm liking the Sox chances at home if they get out of that first inning with just one run because Vince threw the ball very well after that. Yeah, me too. And, and I, my whole thing was, you know, go hit. They were down 4 nothing, and they did have some chances. And they, they didn't come through on some of those chances, ran out of themselves out of an inning at one point as well. But with the way that their offense is built – a 4 nothing lead to me doesn't even seem insurmountable because of how much offensive firepower they have. Well, look, this, this is a team that is going to hit better as the year moves along. Uh, every team I was associated with, they had a certain amount of guys who just didn't hit in the cold weather. Most guys will tell you this is not ideal to swing the bat. Now, there's guys maybe who were, you know, you're talking about American players who were, uh, raised in the Midwest, I, I remember we played 24 games in high school, and 18 of them, the temperature was below 40. So if we couldn't play in the cold weather, you might as well not even play high school baseball because it was always in the cold weather. But that's because I was born and raised in Cleveland. There's a lot of guys also born and raised in the Midwest that have that same that that same uh, upbringing. So we get used to that, and you get off to pretty good starts because hitters don't like to hit in April and sometimes uh, part of May. They don't like to get a fastball in on their hands, and you can feel it three innings later. Also, don't forget that we have a lot of Latin players, and they're born and raised almost without exception in very warm weather. And then you go to spring training, and for a month and a half or two in a normal spring training, because a lot of guys come early, so let's call it two months, they're also playing in warm weather. 
and they're getting their stroke down and they're getting their hands once they they get the blisters uh uh hardened from taking a lot of batting practice early once that happens they get their timing and they can feel their hands they feel every part of their body and they groove their swing well now all of a sudden you come back up north and you have wind chill factors in the 20s Mm. and there's just certain guys that don't hit early the Sox have uh, a lot of a lot of Latin players on their team, and there's a lot of guys who will hit better as the year will move along. And it's not only the Latin players, but I, I use it as an example because they're born and raised in warm weather. They they played in warm weather their whole lives, and it's just difficult. It's difficult for everybody when the wind chill factors get to be in the 20s. But um, you know we're we're seeing uh, we, we say it most every year. We're seeing an unusual. Uh, spring this year because it has been ridiculously cold. With Andrew Vaughn, what do you think is the right thing to be done with him? Because clearly he's an offensive producer. So can can he get 450 at-bats with the amount of guys that need at-bats on this team? Well, that, that's the delicate balance that that Tony is going to have to uh, is going to have to try to navigate through is how to get the proper amount of at-bats for Andrew Vaughn while still keeping these other guys sharp enough so they can contribute when it's their turn to play. I think Gavin Sheets, because he left-handed power presence, I mean, they've got Yaz, when, when Grandal is hitting it as a switch hitter, he's very strong from the left side. Uh, Leary hasn't done anything yet to this point, but um, uh, they just don't have a lot of... Uh, left-handed thunder. If Moncada comes back and he comes back uh, with anything like he's been at certain times, they're going to be a whole lot better. But right now they could use that left-handed bat in Gavin Sheets. And so Tony has to look and try to get all these guys at bats. And it's not an easy thing, especially when you have, you have uh, a certain amount of games, you have off days and you have a certain amount of games canceled early. You're having to mix and match in your lineup. Also, I think I think Tony's probably looking at some matchups where he still understands that Andrew is still a very young hitter. I have said he's going to be a top-of-the-line Major League run producer. I want to see him get anywhere from 450 to 500 bats, and I'm hoping he's able to do that. It's just really difficult early because you don't have consistency of schedule to be able to move guys in and out knowing they're only going to get one day of rest. Sometimes that one day of rest turns into two, sometimes three, depending on the weather. Talking baseball with Steve Stone here on The Score, which we get to do every week or so, which is a lot of fun for me. Stoney, what have you thought of Michael Kopech so far? Well, just as Dylan Cease uh, last year took some massive strides forward over the year before, Michael Kopech from last year to this year has taken a gigantic step forward. I mean, he threw some breaking balls behind in the count in his last performance that were outstanding. I mean, he said that he just didn't have a feel for the slider, so he went to the curveball. The curveball was working. He went, stayed with the curveball. It's the third pitch we keep talking about. When Michael was used out of the bullpen, knowing he's only going to face a hitter one time, then he can count on two pitches. If the fastball and the slider are working, you go fastball, slider, you don't have to worry about anything else. If you're going to be a starting pitcher and you fancy yourself able to get through that lineup for the third time, you're going to have to have a third pitch and preferably sometimes have a fourth 
if one of the other three is not working. So he's got a straight change, doesn't use it often, but he's going to use it more as he gets comfortable with it. But I was encouraged by the curveball last time out because he's basically a fastball slider pitcher. If he gets to the point where he's really confident with the curveball, it gives the hitter a different look. It puts something in their minds. Uh, they're looking of him, and they're watching three pitches and sometimes four, and all of a sudden you can't really game plan. You know, Lawrence, if I'm facing you and you have two pitches, I'm going to guess with you, and I'm going to get it 50% right. But if you have three pitches, it goes down, obviously, to 33. If you've got four, it's 25%. However, if you can change speeds on some of those pitches, it's even less likely that you're going to be able to uh, – you're, you're, going to, you're going to fool me more if you can change speeds and I'm going up there looking for two pitches. Now I'm suddenly looking at three pitches and I'm looking at a variance in speed between those pitches. Now, all of a sudden you might have the equivalent of six pitches. Now I'm really in trouble. I can't guess with you. I just have to look for the ball. Then more times than not, it's going to be a lot easier to strike me out. I think Michael has made some great strides. I'm really happy. He's always had a great arm and we say it a lot. Sometime along the line, Potential has to translate into performance, and I think we've seen Michael start to uh, become the pitcher that we all think he's going to be. When I watch Kopech's fastball, it has that late life to it. And even at 96, like I, I think that it's a more difficult pitch than maybe a guy throwing 98 that doesn't have that. Is that something that can be learned, or is that just God-given talent? Well, there's a couple of things, and we're able – via the Rapsodo machine, which which measures spin rate, we're able to figure out just how every pitch, including the fastball, is spinning. The faster the ball spins, the more life it has to it. The faster a curveball spins or slider spins, the, the more drastic the break. Uh, if you get a higher spin rate on your curveball, it's not going to stay on one plane long enough for a hitter to be able to take a look at it, time it, know exactly where to swing, and the ball will kind of fall into that area. Because the ball comes up, it almost looks like it's on a string. It comes up fairly straight and then just dives at the end. That's a product of the revolution of the baseball. How fast can you make it spin? The fastball is a different spin, but it's the same idea. The higher the spin rate on the fastball, the better the carry, as they say on that four-seamer. And so Liam Hendricks throws hard, there's a lot of guys throw as hard as Liam, but very few guys have the life on the fastball that he has because he's always able to get great extension. Consequently, heavier backspin, and that fastball has a little life to it. Um, I understand he's struggling a bit with the fastball in the early going now, but that's going to change as soon as he starts getting his slider over the plate more. But um, that's the key to everything, Lawrence, is the spin rate. And now that we're able to quantify it, we can improve the pitch. We can tell when the pitch is good, when it needs something else, and that, uh, that's one of the great things you know, in this, in this data-driven era that, we, uh, that we're in. That's one of the great things that's come out of it, the ability to pick up spin rate and understand when a pitcher has to make, make a change in how he's holding and delivering the baseball. I imagine just because you usually are thirsty for knowledge – if you were playing in this era, like how much time do you think that you would spend on on whether it's being in the Rapsodo or getting advanced metric stuff from the front office? What would be your approach to how to handle all of it along with doing all the physical stuff that you need to get ready? I would literally use 
every bit of knowledge that I could because I was always looking for an advantage over the hitter. Because most of my career, I was good enough to hang around, not great enough to excel. There was a short period of time in a couple different years where I was good enough to excel. But uh, for the most part, I was one of those guys that just needed that little extra advantage one way or the other. And any way I could have found it, I would have been more than happy to use. And if I could get a great deal of information and data as to what you're going to do as a hitter, where you hit the ball, what kind of pitches you hit, you might hit the slider better than you hit the curveball. You might hit the curveball better than you hit the slider. I mean, I've got to know all of those things. I want to know, number one, are you a first ball, fastball hitter? Number two, will you swing at a breaking ball when you're ahead in the count? I want to know everything you do. And, and now, because the video libraries are so extensive, you as a hitter, I can tell everything you do and every approach you have at the plate. And by using that, I can try to game plan against you. However, uh, the hitter's up there trying to do the same thing. He, he's looking what you throw at every count. He's looking where you throw it. Are you strong? Are you arm side strong, which is quite obviously for for a right-hand pitcher, arm side strong is the inside part of the plate to a right-hand hitter. Glove side strong is the outside part of the plate to a right-hand hitter. Are you arm side strong, glove side strong? I always felt, for me, I was arm side strong. I could throw the ball inside to a right-hander, away to a left-hander, and hit probably 85 to 90% of the time. On the other side, inside to a left-hander, outside to a right-hander, maybe it was 65% of the time. So I always went with my strength first until you showed me you could hit my strength. Then I have to go to your weakness. So a pitcher first goes to his strength. Then if you show me you can hit my strength, then I have to go to your weakness because my strength might be your strength. Then we'll see who's better, you, you or me. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, it's, it is a bit of a guessing game, but still the guys who can execute consistently are the guys who win, and you, you can watch. Uh, you watch these guys consistently use that strike zone, up, down, in, out, change speeds, throw strikes, work quickly, stay ahead, all of those things, and, and you've got yourself a very good pitcher. Do you think that that's part of the, the growth and development that we've seen with Dylan Cease? Because he's always had the stuff. Like, he's, he's got crazy stuff. But I feel like he's so in command over his last 20 starts or so. He's been so in command of, of what he's got in his arsenal that I wonder, like, how much work he put into that part of it, like the game planning part of it, that's now made him one of the most effective pitchers in the American League. Well, it's a question of going out there and having that great stuff and learning how to harness it. That's one of the things that has allowed Dylan Cease to become the pitcher that it looks like he's going to become. And it's a question, Lawrence, of waking up one day, looking in the mirror and say, I belong. And my feeling was when I started to understand the psychological aspect of competition, when I understood how to use my mind as well as my body, because your mind will govern your body, when I understood that, it went something like this. I would look in, let's say, at Willie Stargell, Roberto Clemente, um, all the great Cincinnati Reds, the big red machine, whether it be Joe Morgan or, or Johnny Bench or Pete Rose, for that matter. And at that point, when I was trying to get them out, I didn't understand much about the mental aspect of competition. But later on, I still was facing Hall of Famers. And my thought process was, 
you're going to go to the Hall of Fame, but not tonight, because tonight is my night. I can't beat you over a career or over a year, but I can certainly beat you tonight, because tonight is my night, not yours. And when you get that feeling, you get to be unbeatable. And for a very short period of time, for a a time of a season and a half, I felt that I was unbeatable because it was an integration of everything I still had from a physical standpoint combined with where I had taken the mental aspect of competition. Understanding to integrate both is understanding how to win with less than your best, and that typifies a quality major league pitcher because you're only going to have your best stuff 25% of the time. And the guys who understand how to win with less than their best are the guys that float to the top of this huge talent pool that is the major leagues. Well, I hope that this is what we continue to see with Dylan Cease because I've loved it. And I I love how confident he is on the mound and how confident as a, a fan I am now when he's on the mound. Well, I think what you've seen with Dylan Cease, you will continue to see. He's at the point now because he is a cerebral pitcher. He's a very smart pitcher. So is Lucas Giolito. And for his own right, Lance Lynn, uh, you know, despite the fact that it looks like why well, I throw a fastball every pitch, yeah, he does, but he varies it. He's a smart pitcher also. But there's only one thing right now that will stop Dylan Cease from being a great in this game, and that's injuries. He's figured it out. He understands how to harness his stuff. He knows what to throw, when to throw it, and where to throw it. And if he stays healthy, the sky is the limit as far as what he can accomplish. I mean, you're looking at a guy that possibly can win 20 games just about each and every year. If if uh, if people think that the wins are important these days, I happen to think they still are. I think Dylan can win 20 games each and every year with the only thing stopping him will be an injury, and hopefully he'll be able to avoid that. Stoney, as always, I love when we get an opportunity to talk baseball, and I thank you so much for being on the show today. Hopefully there'll be cold baseball in Cleveland tonight. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'm glad I'm not playing any longer because it's a, it's a bit chilly. And, you know, it depends. If you want your players to play without feeling their hands, uh, you want Shane Bieber on the mound throwing that fastball if he can't feel his fingers? I don't know. We'll see. Hang in there. Are, are you going to have the heater in Cleveland, too, or what? Uh, no, unfortunately not. And uh, I think they do have a heater up there. But, you know, Jason really likes the windows open. He's very much like Harry Carey in that respect. Harry had, I think, pleurisy for the first two months of every season because he never shut the window. Jason also doesn't like to shut it. But occasionally occasionally I prevail upon him uh, uh, to do that because, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a – uh, a popsicle up there. Yes, that, I don't want that for you either. So hopefully he <laughs> will be able to find a heater for the broadcast tonight. Stoney, as always, a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Lawrence. Have a good show.